Hi guys, today is Sunday, February 28th, and if this is the first episode of Season 3, then this is The Delve. My name is Chaelin Askew and I'm a democracy advocate. Over the last five years, I've knocked on doors and helped register voters, all to help increase civic action around the country. Oftentimes, I'm asked questions by my family and friends about politics. I thought one of the ways I could serve not only them, but my community, is by bringing those answers to you. The news goes by so fast, and if you're not constantly plugged in, five, ten stories might go past you. Much of what we're experiencing today is similar to that of the Civil War era. The intense polarization, an increase in nationalism, a decrease in confidence in our government institutions like the presidency, Congress, and the Supreme Court. Additionally, racial violence was present then and is still present now. Lincoln's election in 1860 solidified the North-South divide the prompt secession of many southern states mirrors the divide we see today between blue and red states. Lincoln won by only one electoral vote, with less than 40% of the popular vote, prompting South Carolina to declare the election as a hostile act and then seceded. It was the first state of 11 to do so. Trump's lies around the 2020 election created a large divide between those who believed the election was free and fair and those who believed it was rigged. Today, we're talking with Dr. Billy Coleman from the University of Missouri, who'll walk us through the eerie similarities between early America and the America we live in today. Hi, Dr. Coleman. Thank you for joining us here at the Delft today. How's it going? It's going good. So I'm, I'm just very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Coleman, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you teach? Sure. I teach basically early America at the moment. So teaching the revolution, um, the first few decades of the nation and its existence and sort of through into the civil war. And my research is specifically about the relationship between music and politics and tracing a lot of conservative ways of using music and wanting to use music to try and harmonize the nation together under certain ideals and certain visions about, you know, what the the best way to organize society would be in a very harmonious hope uh, that people could can work together. I want to talk a little bit about the Civil War era and further up to 1876. And I know you referenced kind of like the colonial era as well, so feel free to reach back then too. This is kind of not just like an immense period of time, but immensely consequential. And I feel like modern Americans tend to overlook it. And we're starting to see some similarities today emerge in the country. And we can probably learn some things as a nation, you know, if we look back at our history. I want to ask what's remarkable about this period 1861 through 1876, and feel free to go back further. What's remarkable about this time period and some of the similarities 
that you see today? What jumps out at you? Well, one thing that's jumping out to me at the moment is a theme that really connects the revolutionary period and the post-revolutionary period through to the Civil War and the post-Civil War period up through 1876, and even now, is violence, right? And especially violence as a, as a political... Like a tool. Tool and a way of trying to figure out how to run a society um, that can avoid violence. It is definitely something that is, that is connecting all of these moments. The most important thing to do at that point is to instill unity and order behind the nation's leaders. Because otherwise, everything is going to fall apart, right? You can't have a society that is not unified in that context, right? And they could look at the history of the rest of the world as they knew it, right? And think, well, you know, most of the time, if a society falls into revolutionary violence, uh, it tends not to stop at like one revolution. So, you know, who's to say that, you know, that can't happen to us. And so the first priority has to be order. And in that sense, that is the precondition for any kind of liberty that Americans are going to be able to realize. What are some of, I guess, the underlying ideals that have survived from that time to today? Besides the violence, what other, I guess, particular elements do modern conservative movements have that are perhaps replicated or drawn from both, I guess, the colonial period and, I guess, through uh, 1876? One thing that I think is important about conservatism and conservative movements in that sense, especially across time, is in some ways the power of conservatism, at least to my mind, and I think people can disagree with this, but I think a lot of the power of it comes down to being able to claim the mantle of conservatism for yourself. But I guess you could say that there is a sense that conservatives now and conservatives then are fundamentally about trying to preserve a sense of institutions, moderation, at least a, a claim towards moderate temperament, and simply using tactics and, and practices um, like music, for instance, um, that can cast a kind of respectable sheen over what could otherwise be perceived as radical actions. But it it, it does kind of come full circle once you get to insurrection at the Capitol. And I read about at least one account where there was someone who was trying to explain that, you know, to them, they were doing this patriotic thing. And, you know, there may have been violence and stuff going on, but what they were doing was, you know, standing and singing the Star Spangled Banner. And to them, that meant that what they were doing was patriotic. And it was a, a conservative kind of respectable action for them to be able to do. And the same thing happens at, at, you know, Trump rallies in general, at least leading up to the pandemic, where, you know, you have music pumping into these arenas at incredibly loud levels. And, you know, all these people singing with each other and getting together as a community and seeing this as inherently positive moral thing, in part because what we do when we get together is sing with each other. And this can cast a, a sort of respectable, conservative sheen over what others may perceive to be as, you know, an incredibly radical movement. So some of those things, I think, do kind of parallel 
um, and track over time. I'm actually really curious about the musical element of these political movements. And you mentioned the insurrectionists at the Capitol singing and kind of using this as some type of sheen that we're, we're actually being patriotic because, look, we're singing the national anthem and, you know, all this stuff. Were there similar musical elements to, I guess, the southern states when they succeeded? Were they, hey, we're actually doing this for a patriotic thing and sing along and let's be merry and happy we're doing our patriotic duty? Most definitely. <laughs> yes, wow. definitely. Overall, it is... Uh, definitely true that uh, once secession happens, the idea of music and patriotism is something that the Confederates. I, I have they mean. a random question. It's, it's like a sidebar and we don't have to spend too much time on it. But these patriotic songs from the Confederacy, are they still around today? Are there groups that still oddly sing them? Yes. Yes. Wow. I mean, one of them is still Maryland's state song at the moment. Um, <laughs> That's not creepy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Maryland state song is Maryland by Maryland. But I mean, everyone would typically uh, be familiar with Dixie, which, you know, was still played at college sporting events until very recently. I think that's very mind blowing that the state song of Maryland has like a some tie to the confederacy that's and i mean they didn't even secede <laughs> but, but yeah <laughs> like what's going on here yeah that's crazy but they they currently there's like i think that there may be some kind of legislation or there's definitely current debates about changing it we'll be right back registering voters is hard work the Democratic Voter Project is now selling shirts where you can register a new voter by scanning a QR code directly on the shirt. With this shirt, you can now register a voter anytime, anywhere. But that's not all. With every t-shirt purchased, you plant five trees. Purchase a shirt now at demvp.org shirt. So we see things like these insurrections and some of these modern conservative sentiments. Joe Biden's not our president. He's not a legitimate president. We saw like after the election, there was like this huge gap of time before even elected Republican officials finally acknowledged that he was president-elect. Were there similar sentiments during the election and the re-election of Abraham Lincoln? I'm guessing, you know, during the Civil War, Southerners were not voting and then the union wins and were they also feeling this guy's not our president this is unfair this is tyranny this is unjust well i mean during the civil war i i mean most confederates i guess would have felt that it wasn't really their election to to begin with since they had seceded right so you know they had jefferson davis as their president um but um you know it was it was still a very you know closely fought election in in the union I mean, I guess really the, the the closest parallel in that sense would be Lincoln's initial election, which you know is an election that takes place at least nominally at a at a national level, even if in practice, you know, his name wasn't even on the ballot for a, a whole lot of southern states. And once he was elected, essentially uh, without any 
real support whatsoever coming from southern states and and southern slave states i guess they they don't necessarily say that it's illegitimate exactly but they in, in the same way that people are saying it was illegitimate now in terms of like a, it being a, a vote count kind of thing but they certainly say that it's illegitimate in the sense that they are being represented now by a president who doesn't actually represent them what can we learn from 1864 through 1876 and beyond where we have like this group of folks who feel disenfranchised and they don't feel like they're part of the union kind of similar to what we see with folks today in these same similar states how do we move forward in the name of unity i think you hear from some liberals or some folks on the left where they're kind of preaching accountability and you know kind of things like that both for not just the insurrection but for um, the former president and then you have folks more on the right who are no let's just focus on unity let's move forward you know let's kind of like turn the page on this just from history what could we have done better back in that time for you know a more perfect union if you will <laughs> <laughs> yes well i mean i think we could have done many things better in terms of lessons in in that context i mean i think accountability has to be part of it right i think people do have an understandable desire i guess put it this way so once the civil war is over people similar in some ways but perhaps even more deeply since it was a sort of larger event involving you know the deaths of of so many more people there is an understandable tendency to want to move on right to want to turn the page start a new chapter begin a new and to you know literally move forward right like do you need to look backwards in order to move forward physically not necessarily you can move forward without necessarily having to sort of trudge through you know really difficult traumatic periods in not just the nation's past but in terms of people's actual lives after the civil war is over you do have this period of reconstruction that is full of you know furious progressive change right that's when you get the 14th amendment you get the 13th amendment during uh, the end of the civil war which which makes slavery illegal under the constitution you get the 14th amendment in reconstruction the 15th amendment in reconstruction once you have that happen then it just becomes a backlash more or less where once you have blacks voting whites tend to see some of their power eroding and that leads directly into the jim crow era and and once again massive violence <laughs> massive violence yeah even before yeah. the jim crow era this is when you get the ku klux klan it's when you have you know lynching and you know some of the darkest periods of american history really follow what in some ways politically speaking are the brightest pieces of american history when you have the 14th amendment and the 15th amendment um and things like that not uncomplicatedly bright you know some you know progress on racial fronts in in some of those amendments um uh you know steps backwards when it comes to say the women's rights and so on and so forth but the desire to move forward without reconciling with a deep trauma that has happened to the nation is an understandable desire but i'm not sure personally that it's one 
that ultimately helps lead to more peaceful places. But the thing is that it's, it's really hard because the more directly you confront those things, the more uncomfortable everyone feels because no one wants to confront uncomfortable things. But that doesn't mean that not confronting it is going to help, right? Um, it doesn't mean that not confronting it actually makes any of that go away. I think a lesson that comes out of that period is definitely that we've seen what happens when we fail to seriously try to confront um, trauma that happens in this country. It's not a question of it, you know, repeating again in any kind of linear fashion. But I think that is, I think that's ultimately, I think one of the, the things that can be taken away there. I, I think I agree with you, like you're saying, there's, it's not this linear path. However, we see kind of like a repetition of elements from the past. And sometimes it's, it's a little frightening. I don't know what, how do we deal with this trauma, this trauma that no one wants to deal with because it makes everyone uncomfortable, but also a trauma that it's so backed up. <laughs> you know, it's like 200, 300, 400 years for some folks, for some communities of trauma and no one wants to address it. What mm -hmm. do we do as a nation to, you know, kind of get on with being a country if we don't address the trauma. I feel like that's, that's like you were saying, that's really, really tough. I feel like a great way to always in interviews is I like to ask folks, um, what makes you hopeful about the future, about the future of the United States, the path that we're on? What would you say to that? I guess I would say that one thing as a historian, I guess that, that gives me hope is I think we can recognize that Americans actually care about the past. <laughs> Americans are already very invested in their own past and in our own past, speaking as someone who was born in the United States, even if, even if I don't sound like it. But there is a deep investment in, the, in American history, in the American past, and in, and in trying to figure out what its significance is no matter like what side of politics people are on, people are still really deeply familiar with why, you know, the founding matters, why the civil war matters, why all sorts of aspects of the past matter. And I don't think Americans have forgotten it. And at least at a certain level, it's not something they've forgotten. And that is something that, that gives me a certain amount of hope. I guess what the issue is, is that what I think what needs to happen is a, a way, some way to, to leverage that fundamental interest and investment in the past with a recognition that we're still very divided over what parts of that past should be celebrated and what parts of that past need to be recognized as the sort of mistake that we don't want to repeat. Those are the things in, the, in our past that we don't have any kind of consensus around, but getting closer to a sense of recognizing that, you know, we don't just learn the past to, you know, avoid repeating it, right? Make America Great Again was all about trying to repeat at least some version of the past. I think perhaps what we need to try and figure out is what is a mistake? <laughs> what was a mistake? And try and move forward with some greater sense of, of shared conviction 
about what that is. This is a fascinating conversation. I feel like I, I went into this thinking about one thing, and then when you're bringing up the musicality of past movements and how there's still vestiges of that today, Dr. Coleman, blow my mind over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yes, music music will let you talk about anything. I think I think that's right. I think that's the truth. Right. Yeah. Look at that! Wow, everyone, Dr. Coleman, thank you for coming on the Dell today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. Dr. Coleman is a postdoctoral fellow in history with the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri. He is also the author of the new book, Harnessing Harmony, Music, Power, and Politics in the United States, 1788 to 1865. That's The Delve. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next Sunday.